Hopefully a, a bad throat won't diminish the power of the word today. That's my claim. Um, you know, we, um, we joke from time to time, maybe all the time, about the length of our sermons. And um, when I said something about that last week, Pastor Greg was preaching. I I joked to him, and he jokes to me. We get, you know, we don't joke about our own sermons being long. But I thought about something um, regarding that actually last week when I made a comment about it. Um, Thinking, and I thought about it too when Pastor Greg was um, preaching a couple of weeks ago on worshiping God in spirit and truth in relation to the Samaritan woman. And uh, it reminded me of something John MacArthur, I heard John MacArthur say at some point. Um, but because someone asked him, they said, with such long sermons, when do your people have time to worship? <laughs> um, and his answer was that without long sermons, our people don't know how to worship. This is what he said. Look at this. Your worship is informed by your understanding of the revelation. Your worship only goes up as high as it goes down. Isn't that good? Your worship only goes up as high as it goes down. Because the deeper you go into the truth about God, the higher you go in worship. Superficial knowledge of God leads to superficial worship. And then people need to be manipulated. You see, worship, by the way, is not music. Um... Worship is loving God. Worship is, is honoring God. Worship is knowing God. Worship is knowing God for who He is. Worship is adoring Him, obeying Him, um, proclaiming Him. That's what worship is. And now music is one way to express that adoration uh, for Him. Because worship is enriched by what the worshiper knows. That's why the teaching of the Word is so important. Worship is enriched by what the worshiper knows, not feels. Worship is a mental experience. It's not emotional experience. Emotion follows and important but we worship when we praise the Lord. That's one way we do that corporately together. Our, but our praise is informed by the revelation, by the truth that we know. Truth informs and therefore increases our worship. So in case someone asks you, bless you, Trudy. In, in, in case someone asks you, when do you have time to worship with your sermons being so long? Now you know the answer. Today in this text, 
Uh, we see some stages of belief. You know, God, when God brings us to belief, He brings us in different ways. I, if we all gave our salvation testimony, they would all be different. God just deals with us in different ways. And we see the stages of belief in a man's life in this passage today in chapter 4. Um, and there are three uses of the word uh, belief here. Um, in verse 48 of chapter 4, Jesus said, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. And then in verse 50, Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word. That's the third, second time belief is used. And then in verse 53, the father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed. And so... The, the the use of these words, uh, of this word belief in this passage, actually informs us of the stages that this man goes through. And Jesus starts out dealing with a man who has an ignorant, insufficient faith. It's a wonder. This is also a wonderful picture of um, of the prophecy of Isaiah 42 verse 3. When we read, a bruised reed he will not break, a smoking flax he will not quench. That's a prophecy that shows how Jesus tends to and cares for this man who has an ignorant, just insufficient faith. And so, first today we'll see that Christ encounters a false faith. And secondly, we'll see him testing a growing faith. And then we have Christ rewarding a, a truly tested uh, faith in this passage. Let me read the passage for you before we go any further. We'll start with verse uh, 43. Can you hear me? Okay, good. Well, that's a plus. You know, also, I've been sick with this cold. It won't go away. And I thought, I, that was my perfect job, with what I did this week. Not being sick. But my perfect job would be to sit around like a slug all week long and just read and read and read and study. Don't worry, the sermon's not going to be any better. But I get to read and read and read and study and study and study. I, I don't even... I'm an... Uh, I'm an introvert, so I don't even care about standing up here and delivering the message. I just want to get it down on paper. And one of you, Steve, you could come up and just preach the sermon. I'll stand back there and run the slides. But uh, then Ben would be out of a job. But, um, but that was the perfect job for me today. I mean, this week. So where was I? 43. After two days, he departed for Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine, and at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and 
asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. And he was going down, his servants met him, told him his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. He himself believed in all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Praise the Lord. That's the word of God. Jesus, I mean, John gives us this transition uh, like John is prone to do between sections of uh, Scripture. Um, he, he gives this transition in verses 43 through 45. It's a common thing for him to do. And he talks about him leaving Samaria and his return uh, to Galilee. He's going from Jerusalem. And then Jesus goes to Samaria for a couple of days. And then he goes on uh, to Galilee. We've said before it could be that this movement is because he didn't want to get in too much trouble in Jerusalem with the religious people. So he moves on to more receptive territory. And uh, it certainly must be receptive because Jesus spends two-thirds of his three-year ministry in, in Galilee, in that, that area. And there's some reasons for this. First, he only ha- at this point... Now, remember, I told you this a long, long time ago. Um, at this point... Um, the other Gospels that deal with the ministry of Jesus. Now, they do the birth portion, but the other Gospels dealing, when they get to the ministry of Jesus, they haven't even gotten to this point yet. They start later than this. So, at this point in the Gospel of John, Jesus only has five disciples. Um, And so, he's going up to Galilee to complete that list of Disciples, and and uh, we 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 see that in Luke Luke chapter five and six. We won't go there, but that's the case. That's one of the reasons why he's particularly moving up into this area. That's where the rest of the disciples are that he's going to call. And the second thing, Jesus has some sense of his future, and he knows if he stays in Judea, then things will get heated, um, and there'll be more and more pressure put on him, and he knows that his hour has not come. His time has not come. And so he, it's two and a half years away. And so he's, um, he has to move, move away from that particular area. So he leaves uh, Samaria. You know, you would think, too, that, and this is, might be the case, that some of those Samaritans that just got saved would want to go with him and be disciples. But we don't see any evidence of them uh, leaving, or it could be that he made them stay behind. So he heads toward Galilee, leaves Samaria, heads toward Galilee with his chosen disciples. 
um, who by now must be pretty amazed at his particular ministry. And they saw what he had done in Samaria. And they've gotten a really good taste of what non-discriminatory evangelism really is with Jesus' work in Samaria. And that, that, that's in 43. And in 44, we see this declaration about his reputation. Um, we, we, we're not going to go into detail about that, but a lot of commentators have a lot of different opinions about the difference in verses 44 and 45. They say the prophet that has no honor in his own hometown. Some of your Bibles might translate that um, country, which is not an incorrect translation. It can be con- translated that way. And then in 45, it says, so when he came to Galilee, they welcomed him. So there's some some difference in that. And the commentators go from, well, talking about his hometown, they might be talking about Judea because that's where he was born in Bethlehem. But all the other gospels refer to that statement as meaning Nazareth, which is probably makes the most sense. Nazareth um, is the place where there is most opposition in the Galilee area. And that really is his hometown where he was raised. And we, we just a little bit later than this, it's the time where they drag him. Uh, and Jesus is, is talking to the religious leaders in Nazareth. And he actually pauses. He doesn't go there immediately. And they, they drag him out of town. And that's where they take him to the point of, uh, to the Mount of Precipice. Have you ever been there to the Mount of Precipice there? Outside of Nazareth, some of you may have been there or what they think is that point uh, where they're going to throw him off, you know. And the Bible says Jesus just walked away from him. That's an amazing story as well. Um, so he declares about his reputation being has no honor in his own town, hometown. That's the best translation. It's Nazareth. And then in verse 45, we see that his destination is is Galilee. Now we know that he makes the occasional trip to Jerusalem from Galilee, and, and that's really important. Why is that important? Because go back to um, verse um, chapter two. Well, no, I got it on the screen. Chapter two, verse twenty-three. We see the reason why he goes to Jerusalem. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. That was, uh, that was networking back in those days um, because people from all over the country would come to Jerusalem during the feasts. And so for Jesus to get his message out, that's why he would make those trips to Jerusalem during the feast times um, in order that when those people would leave Jerusalem, they would spread the word as well. And so he shows up. Um, in verse 45, he came to Galilee. The Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast. See, they had seen everything. And, it, and based on verse 48, uh, what 48 suggests, they really just wanted him to do some more tricks. They just wanted to see some more miracles and signs and wonders. They received Jesus as a wonder worker, but they did not trust him as the Messiah at this point. And then we get in the story of this um, nobleman, this official who shows up. And the first thing we see, the level of his faith is that ignorant 
false faith that he had. Uh, this story begins with, so he came to Cana in Galilee where he had made the water wine. Someone, I, I, I can't remember who, someone called this returning to the scene of the wine. Um, <clears throat> and then in verse 40, uh, well, there in 46, the fourth word there, again, he came again. Uh, John's making a point here. I thought maybe Jesus went back to see the newlyweds. You think he might have done that? Poss- hey, what if they needed marriage counseling already? Would it be great for Jesus to be a marriage counselor? Um, and I'm sure they didn't forget Jesus because if... Um, how do I word this? Um, uh, if, uh, if, if wine is a part of your life, the wine that God created was probably good stuff. And so the, the, these newlyweds are not going to forget Jesus who, who came to the wedding and turned the water into wine. But then this passage ends in verse 54 this was now the second sign that Jesus did when he came. Why is John... Nowhere else in the, all of the Gospels do we see these two... Do we see miracles connected like this. Um, he goes back to where the water was turned into wine. This is the second um, sign that Jesus did. They're not numbered. We don't number Jesus... Um, miracles, but John does in the in the first one and the second one, and so there must be some reason, and the reason is they're connected. They, they, why is there an emphasis here and nowhere else? It, probably because John wants us to put them side by side. There are some similarities. Both of them are third day miracles. I don't know what importance that would be. Uh, but the wedding, you see in chapter 2, verse 1, the wedding came on the, the third day. Um, here in this passage, he spent two days in Samaria. And so the third day, we see this particular situation happening. So that both of them are third day miracles. Both of these miracles um, have a rebuke involved in them. Um, in the first case, Jesus <laughs> rebukes his own mother. Uh, And Jesus said to her, verse 4 of chapter 2, Woman, what does that have to do with me? Um, And then in the second one, we see a rebuke in verse 48 of chapter 4. We'll look at in a minute. Um, The third thing is in each case, Jesus performs the miracle at a distance. We see that he just tells the servants, you know, fill the barrels with water. And then all of a sudden, you know, the water becomes wine. And in this one... Um, the the dying child is 22 miles away, and and he's healed. Um, also, the servants possess some knowledge of the miracle. In chapter 2, verse 9, when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. And we see in the case that we'll see today, also that his servants were aware of the young man being healed. 
And then the fifth thing is that each account occurs with some statement that people believed. In the first uh, case, in uh, chapter 2, verse 11, the first of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. And then in chapter 4, at the end of this passage, the father knew that was the hour when Jesus said, Your son will live. And he himself believed in all his household. So there's a lot of similarities uh, between these two. But there's a great single difference in these two miracles as well. One's a wedding. Generally, what? how do people feel at weddings? Happy and, and, and joyful. And in the second miracle, what we see is sorrow potential death, anxiety, all those things that we experience every day in our lives as well. And so that there is one big difference. One is joy and one is sorrow. And in comparing these two, what we see is that life is filled with both things, right? Life is filled with joy and life is filled with sorrow. And Jesus is intimately involved in both sides as he was in this particular case. Archibald Campbell said, Jesus is more than equal to either occasion. He has a place in all circumstances. If we invite him to our times of innocent happiness, he will increase our joy. If we call on him in our times of sorrow, anxiety, and bereavement, he can bring consolation, comfort, and a joy that is not of this world. And so in pointing to this particular truth, John is pointing to the claim that Jesus is indeed the Savior of the world. That's what we saw there at the end of his visit with the Samaritans there. Look at that, verse 42 of chapter 4. They said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you say we believe, for we have heard for ourselves. See, they believed his word. We have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. And that's what John, chapter 20, verse 29, that's what we've been teaching all along. John says, I have written these things so that you may believe. And he does it again. All men, all times, all circumstances, Jesus is the Savior of the world. Then we see the case of this man who comes to a noble man, um, uh, an official, the ESV translates that word. The Greek word is basilikos. um, And that word can also be translated king or uh, it suggests royalty. Um, the best, our best um, guess is that this man is some official from King Herod's royal court. Um, that would be Herod Antipas. And uh, so an, an official from uh, the king's court comes to Jesus. Uh, he was well off. We see later in the story he had servants. Um, so he was, he was rich, he was influential. But it's important for you to know that 
his rank or his riches did not exempt him from the common trials of life. You need to keep that in mind as well. When you, when you think of those, when you're watching TV and you see some famous person or, or you see some politician, people who are in, in positions of importance and power, that there's just as much sickness and pain and sorrow in their lives is there are your lives. I find that sometimes people, people struggle with their preachers being normal humans. Now, I know you know I am, so I've spent 15 years in this pulpit at, again, just showing you how normal I am. But, uh, but people do that to people in high position. Important people. We don't consider that they're struggling through the same things you're struggling. I remember right when Judy and I first got married, 38 years ago. God bless that woman. Um, that we, she was teaching middle school at the time, and we were in the grocery store, and she ran into one of her students, and he looked at her like, "You grocery shop." It, it, like that was the most foreign thought he ever had. But we must remember that that people in higher positions or positions of importance or of power, they are struggling through the same exact struggles that you struggle with. And we need to be sympathetic. You know, we want to attack their politics or attack their lifestyle or this, that, and the other. Uh, but we need to pray for people like that, uh, who we see and uh, all we see are their perfect lives. You know, now with with social media, that's changed somewhat now too. But um, they they have just as much sickness in their life as as you and I do. They and. And they had just as much as of a need for Jesus Christ as you and I do. And that's so very important for us to remember as we pray for people. You're watching that sitcom on TV and, you know, it might not be bad to pray for one of those people or all of them. Sickness and death are great social levelers. Jesus has dealt with this dishonorable sinner in Samaria. Here, here she is, the lowest of lows. All the women in town hate her because all the men in town really like her. And, 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 and Jesus, bring, you know, he cares for her and he loves her and he, he, he brings her to himself. And then we've got this nobleman, that, this official that he deals with. At the same time. So, sickness and death are great social levelers. And so, he comes to Jesus. He comes from Capernaum. Some of you have been there as well. It's a beautiful place on the sea. Um, to Cana. And uh, thanks to Google Maps. Um, and I didn't drive this. I put it in the walk mode. It's 22 miles 
from Cana to Capernaum, and it's a seven-hour walk. Now, that's a... But Chad, you ran the bridge yesterday. There are no bridges between Capernaum and Cana. Um, it's pretty flat. A seven-hour walk, that's a, that's a pretty good hike, 22 miles. So... Um, uh, that's where he had to come. He was an official. He had money, so we don't think he walked. Um, but uh, he probably rode a horse or whatever they rode back in those days. But his response to this man is unfeeling. Did you get that? This man heard Jesus had come. He said, come and heal my son. He's at the point of death. Jesus said, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Well, what's that got to do with anything? My son's sick. You know, God doesn't always give us the answer we expect, does he? But you know what this man's going through. His son's dying. The words Jesus says to him doesn't seem to connect with anything that's going on in this man's life. I suspect the man's thinking, well, what has that got to do with me? If he did say that, Jesus would say it has everything to do with you. As I was going through this this week, I thought, you know, this is prayer. We need to, he's praying to Jesus. We need to think of this as prayer. We read it, we think of it as a story, it's a narrative in scriptures, and we're thinking about this story that we read but to relate it to yourself you need to think that he is coming to Jesus and praying like you do in your prayer closet wherever you pray God doesn't always give the answer that we expect you pray for your lost child you pray for a sick parent you pray for an answer that you need pretty quickly you gotta find a home to you gotta you gotta find a home fast to rent. You gotta find a place to live in. You need an answer quick. You have these desperate calls you've got to make to God. And the answer to that question that you ask in your prayer is crucial to you. But there are more important things and God knows it. You don't know what's important. You don't know what's God's priority. You just know your circumstances, and it hurts. And you need an answer. You know what that's like? Are you you asleep? You're in a hurry, and God isn't. I've, I've, I've used this saying for over 30 years. God may be late. But he's always on time. God, I want an answer now. And he makes you wait. God, my son is sick. Will you please come and heal my son? Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. I, I Just come, would you? He prays to Jesus. He's desperate. He's in a hurry. 
And Jesus responds in a way that seems unfeeling to us. And he certainly answers in a way that doesn't seem to have any urgency about the matter. Remember when he waited two days before he went to his best friend, Lazarus, sickness, and then he died. You see, Jesus knows the power he has. We don't. Oh, he's sick. Oh, he's dead. I can still handle that situation. It's not a problem with me. Remember Jairus comes to him in Mark chapter 5. Jairus begged him earnestly, saying, My little daughter lies at the point of death. Come. He wanted him to come too. Come and lay your hands on her that she may be healed and she will live. And he did come. He didn't hesitate like he does in this man's case. What, he is, what he's doing here, he's putting aside the apparent urgent necessity, what the man feels, in order to deal with a far deeper necessity, what Jesus knows. You got that? What is, what is, he's putting aside, not that Jesus has to put aside anything. He can handle all problems all at the same moment. But he's, in this narrative, he's putting aside an urgent necessity, which comes from us, so that he can deal with the more important necessity, which only he knows about. And because in these words there is not only the revelation of the time frame that Jesus lived with, but also what he thought was the most important issue that he had to deal with at the moment. And not only that he had to deal with at the moment, but the the most important issue that Jesus has to deal with in all of our lives. And if the man had been toying with the idea of seeing Jesus as some wonder-working, miracle-worker, cure-all magician... Jesus stopped him in that thought. It was a good thing to heal the boy. But it was far, far more important that this father be led to faith. It was a good thing to heal his son. But it was far, far more important that that boy's father know the Lord Jesus. That's why we can't, we can't say God always wants you well, like the faith healers will say. Or it's always God's desire to heal you. Have you heard that? It's always God's desire to heal you. Have you heard that? that that's from the pit of hell and smells like smoke. It's not the most important thing. Bringing you to faith is the most important matter. That's what I don't get about the worldly success of the faith healers that we see today. The ones you see on TV, you hear about everywhere. It's clear in Scripture, especially here, but it's clear throughout Scripture that belief does not come from miracles. Belief 
does not come from signs and wonders. Belief does not come through those things. When we, te- when we preach through Acts, you saw that all the time. And we reiterated that point all the time. It is not belief that comes from miracles and signs and wonders. But those guys, those faith healers, they're deceiving millions and millions of people. And sadly, they're producing more false conversions than anything else they're producing, which means that they're sending people to hell unwarned, like the Spurgeon quote we saw last week. Sending people to hell unwarned because they want people to see the sign and believe with a false belief instead of seeing the person of Jesus Christ and believing in truth. You got that? Do I have to say it again? Those who continually seek signs, wonders, and miracles are prime candidates for those racketeers. Those racketeers who offer healing from God while bringing in millions of dollars in donations. And those, healer, those healers are accountable to nobody. Live lavish lifestyles. I went to, uh, back late last year, I went to, uh, Pastor Greg and I went to a conference on truth. Conference on truth. One of the facts that came, one of the statistics that came out of that, 90% of all Pentecostals worldwide live in poverty. There's a reason for that. Their preachers are stealing their money. Ninety percent of all Pentecostals worldwide live in poverty. Now, and that's not to demean every single Pentecostal. But that's a truth we need to consider. Jesus, he just came from Samaria. They didn't know anything about signs and wonders. They were Samaritans. They didn't go to Jerusalem for the Passover. They didn't see what Jesus had done in Jerusalem like these people in Galilee had. They didn't do that sort of thing. They worshipped another way, those Samaritans. They didn't need to see signs and wonders. Guess what? They came to faith. They simply came to faith because of the person of Jesus Christ. They didn't believe because he was some wonder-working miracle worker. They believed the word, those things he told them. What I, I just read that verse for you. For we have heard for ourselves. They heard from him. They heard his word. They believed the word. That's why we preach the word from this pulpit. And it stirred their hearts. But that message in verse 48, which seems unfeeling to us, is not. Jesus is pained by encountering this man because of what he sees in his heart. We don't see that on the words. 
He sees hurt. He sees agony. In many ways, this this comment in, in verse 48 shows us that Jesus is in sorrow over the fact that this man is blind to the character of Jesus Christ. He does, he's not interested in the character of Jesus Christ. He just wants to see a miracle. And Jesus said, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. How pitiful is that? You've got to see signs and wonders in order to believe. They didn't want to hear his wisdom. They didn't understand that his life was filled with grace. But if you would have performed some miracle, they would have just flocked to him with a worthless faith. That must have cut Jesus to the heart. Knowing that all the love, all the grace, all the truth that he had to give them, and they didn't care. They just wanted to see another magic act. His love fell on blind eyes. That's true for some of you here today. His love falls on blind eyes. It's so interesting that how powerless the revelation of, of, of God-like character How powerless is the revelation of grace and love and truth when it can be compared to some simple outside miracle? Now, I don't want to disparage miracles either. Everybody that gets saved is a miracle. We see miracles all the time. Jesus was and is in the miracle Business, but it needs to be put in its proper biblical perspective. And, and it's the same blind, this blindness. He's talking to them. He said, you've got to see signs and wonders or you won't believe. That's crazy. Well, Jesus didn't say that's crazy. But that, that same blindness exists in your life, exists in my life. Because material things, earthly things, worldly things occupy our hearts and occupy our minds. And we can't see the truth either. And that still drives a knife into the loving heart of Jesus Christ. Alexander McLaren says that miracles are rather a hindrance than a help to the reception of Christianity in many quarters. And we're the same way. Unless we see, we won't believe. The world even has a proverb for that. What? Seeing is believing. True wisdom, love, Beauty, the character of God, all just goes over our heads. But when a man comes and he 
he feeds 5,000 people with a piece of bread. We say, man, that's a prophet that should come into the world. I'm going to follow him. Hmm. We know this, but we don't live it. Oh, if I could hear his real voice telling me, I'll follow him. Oh, if I could see him move in some way to let me know what to do, I'll do that. Oh, if I could just see him, I would believe. How many times have you heard that? Even the strongest faith leans toward and desire. Even the strongest faith leans toward and, and, and desires the external and the visible. And even for those of us here who have deep, strong faith, we still lean toward the external and the visible. We can hear Jesus say, unless you see signs and wonders, you won't believe. It's true for us too. And when you have a cold, you talk slower. And so we'll finish next week. Let's bow our heads. Let me ask you that question. Whether your faith is weak or strong, are you still trusting in what you see? Friends, faith is not by sight. For those of you that are Christians, faith is not by sight. Increase your faith by trusting in what you don't see, the truth of His Word. And if you're here and you don't know Christ as Lord and Savior, Faith is not by sight. You step out and you trust His death on the cross for you. You can do that today. As we sing this song in a moment, you can make your way to the back. There'll be some of our elders back there who will speak to you, who pray with you, answer your questions. Just when we stand and sing, you make your way back there if you need to talk to someone. Father, We do thank you for the truth of your word. We do thank you that we can trust your word. We do thank you, Father, that whether we're more like the Samaritan woman or more like this official in the high court of King Herod, Father, we can trust you knowing full well that your love and your grace is sufficient for everything that we need. We praise you and thank you for that. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. 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 Amen.